Chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter, and it really is the resurrection chapter. There's no other text that has so much focus on the resurrection. We're going to read verses 12 through 20 uh, for our scripture reading, and, and then when I'm done, uh, please remain standing. We'll have prayer together. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 20, Paul says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. May God bless his word. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we want to come before you and ask you to bless Chris War. We're so thankful for his ministry in Italy and for his faithfulness in preaching the word and getting the gospel out. And I pray, uh, Father, that when he comes back to the States, that he would get the proper medical attention, that they'd be able to, to not throw their hands up in the air, but be able to figure out what is causing his abdominal pain. And we just pray for his healing. Pray that he'd be able to get back uh, to, the, to the church that he's ministering to and the people he's reaching. And we just pray you bless him and his family and give him safe travel. But most importantly, we... Pray for his medical needs to be met. Of course, we commit him to you and uh, for your glory. Father, bless your word tonight. Give us an attentiveness to the scriptures. and Help us to realize just how very important the resurrection is and what it means. And we rejoice tonight in that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And song many times before. How about you? And I found the last phrase just kind of slipping off my tongue. Almost without thinking about it. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. What if that day was today? And we just sang it as if same old, same old. And if he came today, oh glorious day, it would be. And that could be today on Resurrection Sunday. What a blessing that would be. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we focus on the resurrection. And what's, why is the resurrection such a big deal? That's the title of the message. What's, what's the big deal about the resurrection? And I submit to you folks, it is a big deal. It is a very big deal. And Paul boils it down, the whole chapter is about the resurrection. Of course, in the beginning, he opens up uh, explaining what the gospel is. Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins. That is the good news. Uh, and that is the gospel that he preached. That is the gospel that, that, 
they received. That is the gospel that saves us. Then he goes on and talks about different aspects of the resurrection. Then he talks about the implications of how important it is. There's some people that were, you know, didn't believe, people that don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And in verse 12, he picks up, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then he really hit this hard, that if you are right, and there's no resurrection, he made no mistakes about it. He just threw everything in one basket. He says, if there's no resurrection, your faith is in vain. Our preaching is, is in vain. You are yet in your sins. And then he culminates it in verse 15 with this statement. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. In other words, he really didn't rise from the dead. He came to this earth lived the life that he lived, said the things that he said, and then he died. But he did not rise from the dead. And so our hope for Christ, all the hope of the disciples, the the apostles that followed him, it was all maybe good while it lasted. You know, you want to go the route that, well, Jesus was a great teacher, and he made some great, you know, he set a great example And his words are very helpful to people in this life. But if he didn't rise from the dead, everything everything is put in a temporal perspective. And that's why Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So why make a big deal about uh, about the resurrection? And there's three answers. First of all, it moves us past the temporal. That's why I said, if, 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 our, you know, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, all that, and he, had just, and he spends all, a lot of time talking about the promise of our future resurrection because he rose again. In fact, we find the great truth. Behold, I show you a mystery in verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The living hope of our resurrection. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all people most miserable. Number two, so it moves us past the temporal. It motivates us to a relationship. The song put it best. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living whatever men may say. And they do dispute that. That's what Paul's addressing. I see His hand of mercy presently. I see His hand of mercy. You can't see the hand of mercy of someone that's dead. He's a living Savior. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me today. Talks with me today. Along life's narrow way. What a a great hymn. But what a more important truth that you and I have a relationship with a living Savior. And then thirdly, 
It means all that we are doing really is for him. If he's dead, and we're just like the, the liberals, I'll mention this in a minute, the liberals' interpretation was that Jesus, you know, lived a good example and uh, is a good moral pattern for us to follow, you know, and, and that's it. You know, he, um, well, I'll read that in a minute. But if that's the case, and he's not alive, then what are we doing? What are we doing? We're just maybe gleaning inspiration from a person that was once alive, maybe in the same way that people would quote Confucius or Longfellow or something. But folks, we serve and we walk with a living Savior. So let's jump in, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. The resurrection, what is the big deal? Well, number one, it moves us past the temporal. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Verse 20, the first word, but. So that, what he just said. You know, if in this life we only have, we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men most miserable, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So we don't just have hope in this life. I want to read to you from a book that, um, that I've actually been listening to. And it was a book that came out in 1923 called Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Macon. He makes a very important statement uh, about the importance of the resurrection. But I want you to listen carefully to what he says. He says, The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was a historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He is risen. But the message of the resurrection was not isolated. It was connected with the death of Jesus, seen now, from the disciples' perspective, to be not a failure, but a triumphant act of divine grace. It was connected with the the entire appearance of Jesus upon earth. The coming of Jesus was understood now as an act by God which sinful men were saved. He goes on, he says, The primitive church was concerned not merely with what Jesus had said, but also and primarily with what Jesus had done. Something happened in the life of Jesus that would forever change these followers. And it had recently been done. The world was to be redeemed through the proclamation of an event. And with the event went the meaning of the event. And setting forth of the event with the meaning of the event was doctrine. Now listen to what he listen to this clarification. He says, so the event, the meaning of the event, and the event itself. He says, these two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of the facts is history. That narration of the facts with the meaning of the facts is doctrine. And he quotes to give you an example. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. 
I love that distinction. You get that? You know, the creed that, that is repeated down through history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's a historical fact. The fact that it's been professed and embraced and recited for centuries is history. That's a historical fact. But the fact that he loved me and gave himself for me, that's doctrine. He said, such was the Christianity of the primitive church. Then a, a, a man commenting on that book, he said how J. Gresham Macon compared and contrasts historical biblical Christianity with the theological liberalism of his day. Liberals of his time, just as liberals today, like liked Christian ideas in a rather shallow fashion, but rejected their biblical foundation of belief. Then as now, the liberal view of Jesus is merely, Jesus is merely the way shower, not the way, the truth, and the life. And that is true. The earthly with Jesus was something we could model our life after, but he's not actually alive right now. So Jesus was a great prophet, he was a great person, we can learn things from him, and, you know, based on whatever was accurately left, you know, we can follow his example. That's their version of Jesus. Our version of Jesus is, he's alive. He's alive today. Made me think as I was thinking of that. You know that popular saying, WWJD? What would Jesus do? You know, really we should be concerned with WDJW. I knew, oh no, I'm throwing the letters around. So instead of what would Jesus do, it's what does Jesus want right now? Because really, folks, he's alive. And it's, you know, and by the way, there's, I'm not condemning the WWJD and all that, that great, you know, book that that came from. I'm not condemning that. But, you know, that goes back to, okay, Jesus lived, lived his life. And now, if he was in my situation now, what would he do? That's a good thing. But I like better because of the idea that he is alive. What would he want me to do right now? That's the idea. And Paul wrote this in Colossians 1.27. Speaking of Christ, he said, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles that God is going to make known? He answers, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Christ in me. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, We are living epistles, known and read of all men. You and I are the best advertisement for Christianity in that we can show that we walk with a person. We have a relationship. With Jesus, Jesus Christ. You know, I love what Spurgeon said about, uh, to, he said to a group of preachers, he said, we've all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought never to come out again. And when he was out of the pulpit, everyone declared that he ought never to enter it again. <laughs> so he's a great preacher. When he got in the pulpit, you know, he was, he was, he was effective. So he should never leave the pulpit. But when he got out of the pulpit, and they saw his life, they said, don't ever go back. And Spurgeon goes on. He says, we do not trust those persons who have two faces, nor will men believe in those whose verbal testimonies are contradictory. As actions speak louder than words, 
so an ill life will effectually drown the voice of the most eloquent ministry. I mentioned just now and then and then earlier, not too long ago, spoke about Christianity being a, you know, about us or someone being an advertisement for the Christian faith. I want you to think of that. You who claim to know Christ, you who have Christ in you, and as Paul talked about, we are living epistles known and read of all men, Paul told the Corinthians. So you know what? People are reading us. And especially if we've identified that we, we know Jesus Christ, what kind of an advertisement are we? You know, we're advertising all the time. Do you realize that? I realized that once I got married, whether I liked it or not, I was an advertisement for marriage. And so if I complained a lot about my wife, which I hope I never done, but that would be a pretty poor testimony. You know, if I go into work and I'm like, man, I, oh, I got to get home to the woman, you know. And all those, you know, the guys that aren't married that I'm working with, and they see that, like, oh, wow, marriage. I don't know if I want it. You know, there are less and less good advertisements for marriage. And men, I want to challenge you. Men, Dave and I, <laughs> you know, we have a responsibility, uh, you know. to. But we're also, if you're a parent... We're an ad, we can be an advertisement for parenthood, you know? If we, uh, we're constantly dissing our kids and, oh, these kids, they drive me crazy. Oh, you know, people that don't have kids are going to look at that and say, oh, maybe I don't want kids. And I'm telling you, folks, there is in America a, an attack on the family, an attack on marriage and an attack on family. That's not... The, the statements of some paranoid person, that is actually what is happening today. It is literally under attack. And you look at all the statistics. So now, Christianity is also under attack. America is becoming less and less Christian, even in name. And so here you and I are. You and I are advertisements for the Christian faith. So what kind of an advertisement are you to the people that you work with, the people that you are around? What kind of an advertisement are you for the Christian faith? The resurrection is important because it moves us past the temporal. We have a living Savior. Number two, it motivates us to a relationship. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see Paul saying, if Christ... Um, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And then, of course, he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, become the first fruits of them which slept. Then he goes on talking about the glorious resurrection. And after he's done all 57 verses of the resurrection chapter, focusing on the glorious doctrines of the re- resurrection, after all 56 verses, He just ends with a really short exhortation. It's like he's saying, all right, in light of this, because we serve a risen Savior, therefore, look at verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in your life, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. I want to remind you, the work of the living Lord. One of the verses that helped me early on as I was heading towards ministry originally, when God put the burden to be a a quote-unquote full-time Christian service, I really thought that God wanted me to be a Christian school teacher, teach kids. And that's where I started heading. When I went to Bible college, started, I took a child education course and started envisioning that. Little, I had no idea God was going to call me to be a preacher, but I began to realize that whatever I'm doing, the work of the Lord, I am, I'm, a lit, I'm serving the Lord. So here's a, verse, a couple of verses in Colossians 3 that really, in fact, it wasn't just going into full-time service. It was my life now. And 1 Corinthians, or Colossians 3, 17 and 23. Whatsoever you do, this is everybody, as a Christian. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So right now, what we do, we're to do it in the name of, in the, not some name of some long, distant, deceased person. We're to do it in the name of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to give thanks to God and the Father by Him. And then verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily. That's the Greek word suke, with all your soul. Do it heartily as to the Lord. Wait a minute, you can't do something right now as unto the Lord if the Lord is not alive. But He is alive. And so everything you do, folks, can be done unto Him. By the way, I wish I could say, and I don't think anyone can say, if you think you can say this, let's switch places, okay? That you have always done everything only for the Lord. Never done anything for men. Okay, I'm getting good response here. Your your response is my response. Uh, I have done things at times... Maybe not initially realizing it, but I've ended up realizing that, that I did this for someone else or that I did this for, you know, f- for my own motives or whatever. And it always backfired, you know. But whatsoever we do, our challenge is whatsoever we do, do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. And do it heartily as unto the Lord. Everything that you and I do for Christ... It's always worth it. Everything. So Matthew 25, Jesus shares this teaching and there's a phrase that preachers have hooked on to over the years that I think, I think they're legitimate in saying this, that this parable, uh, the Lord of the, this, this person that's involved, at the end, when he does write, his Lord says, um, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I'll make thee ruler over many. Uh, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That, that, that phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's many believe that, that that's what Jesus is going to say to those that have served Him. Those that have served Him faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. Those that did what they did as unto the Lord and not unto men, that they're going to hear that. And think of that. When you 
when you live for someone, you want to be a blessing to someone, and you hear their commendation, you know, kids should want to please their parents, especially early on, right? And and I've always been mindful how important praise and, and affirmation is to our kids. Because I find that Satan wants me to focus on all the little picky things that aren't right. And I see a lot of parents do that. You've probably seen the same thing. It's so easy to, and not even realize it. And I think a lot of parents that are just constantly criticizing, it's so important kids need to hear, that you did a great job. You, you really did a great job. Folks, someday... We, want, we should want to hear that. We should want to hear, well done. Now, if it weren't for the blood of Christ, if it weren't for what Jesus did on the cross, none of us are hearing that. Because he's, we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's seeing our ugly stained garments, and he's looking at us and saying, whoo, you are a mess. But because Christ died, and you and I are washed in the blood of Christ, and we're robed with his righteousness... You and I can be faithful, can live for Him. That's why Paul said to Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please Him that hath called Him to be a soldier. There's nothing wrong with wanting to please God. We should want to do that, especially the fact that He is living. Here's a statement I've been quoting a lot. The the whole concept of loving ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they are meant to free. That's a quote that I've shared even recently. And it's really captivated me about how important it is for me to not lose sight of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, loving, uh, there's a danger, dangers afloat, when we love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they are meant to free. It reminded me of a story I shared years ago uh, in the context of preaching on marriage. And I think this is a fictitious story, but communicates what happens a lot. Barb and Bob. Barb was a beauty queen who caught the eye of Bob, a talented athlete. It was love at first sight, romance at its best. Bob took great pride in his home and in his marriage, and so did Barb. Both of them uh, worked tirelessly on doing what was expected. She did what every good wife would do, and he did what every good husband would do. And they found over the years that as they focused him on being a good husband and doing all the things that good husbands do, and her being a good wife and doing all the things that a good wife would do, they, they realized that over time they began to shift from a vibrant relationship with one another to a complacent involvement with the institution of marriage and the organization called home. Wow. Now, let's bring this into our spiritual lives. How easy is it for us to begin with a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and over time, see it move into a complacent involvement with the institution of religion and an organization called church. Just as any couple can find their intimacy waning, I want to ask you something. Is your Christianity 
a vibrant relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, or has it become a cold, dead orthodoxy? We don't want that. We are, we are saved to serve a living Savior. But if the idea is, if it's so easy. In fact, what did, Paul, uh, what did John say in the letter of Jesus, in the letter to the churches, the one church? You've left your first love. Now, they were very diligent on certain things and externals, but they left their first love. Loving ideas more than the God they represent and the people they are meant to serve. Finally, it means, verse 58, it means that all we're doing really is for for Him. The resurrection means that what we do, and that's why Paul closes this 57 verses focusing on the resurrection. And he says, therefore, in other words, because of all this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then you remember this last phrase. For as much as you know, and I've told you that for many years, I, I, because of the old English, it really sounded like he was saying, it didn't, it doesn't, it, if you stumble over the wording, and don't, don't look into it a little, sometimes the old English, you need to look into it. And for as much as you know, when I say that, I'm like, I'm thinking, hey, for all I know, do you ever say that? And that's the way I interpreted it. That's why I kind of came across, that's why for years I never preached on this verse. Can you imagine your pastor saying, hey, serve the Lord. Hey, for all we know, it's worth it, you know, because that's what I thought it was saying. It seemed to be saying that. And then I studied it further, and it's just the opposite. Again, that English, the idea is for as much you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you know that your labor is not in vain in Him. That's what Paul's saying. Our labor is not in vain. In fact, that's why the therefore, because of the resurrection, because we are gonna. We have a future home. Our hope is in heaven. We are serving a living, save, a living Savior. Because of that, we can be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord in this life, which is the biggest challenge. All that be steadfast means walk by faith. Be unmovable means walk by faith. Always abounding in the work of the Lord means walk by faith. Someday we're not going to have to walk by faith. Because we're going to see Him as He is. But that's why Paul would say, because you know, you know without a shadow of a doubt, your labor's not in vain in the Lord. Now if He was dead, it'd be vain. But He's not dead. He is alive. I want to share, I want to close with uh, two things real quickly. This morning, um, from the pulpit, I said, and you have to understand what a big deal this is, and I'll share, give you a little background. Came to the pulpit, and I said, Happy Easter. And at least from my perspective, I felt like there was dead silence. That's what I... Let me tell you why. Years ago, I understood the, um, the history of Easter has pagan roots. 
And, uh, and so I, I, rem- I think I remember even saying from the pulpit, we want to emphasize it's Resurrection Sunday. And there is a group out there in their defense of a translation. I want you to look at, in fact, go, go to Acts chapter 12 in the King James Version, Acts chapter 12. In fact, we used this recently. This is a great, a couple Wednesdays ago, did a devotional called Surprised by the Truth. God surprises us. And he did then. Here, here's the background. Acts chapter 12. In fact, Acts chapter 12. Let's go there real quickly. Acts chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he had put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, in our King James Version, there's only one time the word Easter is found in the Bible, and this is it. Uh, By the way, let's just pick up, I'll share with you what I shared at prayer meeting a couple weeks ago. So, James is killed, and it pleased the people... And so Herod then arrests Peter, and his plan is to have him killed. So Peter's in prison, and the church gathers together in someone's house to have a prayer meeting. And so they are there to pray for Peter. And there's this major prayer meeting for Peter. And all of a sudden, God does a a miraculous thing. And an earthquake, Peter's chains fall off. The door of the prison miraculously opens. Peter thinks at first it's just a dream. And then he realizes it goes out to the outer gate. This iron gate opens of its own volition. Then he comes to and he goes to the place where they're praying for him. And so he knocks on the door. And I I love this story. He knocks on the door. And a girl named Rhoda, I believe it is, answers the door. Now remember, they're having a prayer meeting. What's the focus is Peter. They're burdened. They're, they're kind of expecting, just like every time something happens, I don't think people change. Do you tend, when things go wrong, to kind of have a, oh man, this is horrible. It, the worst case is going to happen. You know, we, I think we do. We have that. Because many times things we pray for, I get surprised when God answers them. And, I, I, you know, so here's the case where all of a sudden God miraculously frees Peter. He comes to the house, knocks on the door. Rhoda opens the door, or she answers, finds out it's Peter when she hears his voice. She's so excited, it says, with, for gladness, she leaves and goes and tells everyone, Peter is here. And they're all debating with her. Nah, Peter's not here. Talk about faith. What have you been praying for? Well, we're praying that God would protect and and release Peter. Oh, and what's Rhoda telling you? Well, she's telling us that Peter's at the door, but Peter can't be at the door because he's in prison and Herod's getting ready to kill him and he's probably going to kill him after Easter, you know, or after Passover. And so they wouldn't believe her. And finally, he has to keep pounding on the door like, hey, I'm here. And then they go and they answer. And then he comes in and he tells them. And they're all surprised. 
And how many times does God surprise us? But I want to talk to you about, for a minute, just about this idea of Easter. Because there's a group out there that, in defending this translation of the word Easter, have a take that is not grounded in history. And I'm not going to go into all the detail. I've done a, a couple of videos on what, the, what saith the translators. In one of them, I talk about the word Easter, if you're interested in that. I'm going to give you an article. And the best article I've read about this recently is on the website of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Uh, and it was, it's an article that was produced in the early 1980s by a guy by the name of T.H. Brown. Uh, if you want to Google it, Trinitarian Bible Society... Uh, the use of Easter in Acts 12.4, it is accurate, it gives the history, and it shows uh, that the word Pascha, which is, you know, 27, 29 times used in the New Testament, uh, Wycliffe, when he came to that word, just brought the word into the English and translated it Pascha. Then when Tyndale translated it at that time, and that was Passover, Everybody knew the word Pascha meant Passover. So when Tyndale translated it in that time, they believed that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And at that time, they celebrated Easter's, the resurrection. And so he translated it over and over, Easter, uh, the word Pascha, he translated Easter or Easter lamb. And then by the time the King James translators, uh, and then the next couple English ones they began, because it's really not, the word Pascha means Passover. The only reason it became Easter was because of the professing church's belief that Jesus was the Paschal Lamb. But as they began to retranslate into the English, they began to correctly translate a Passover and then when the King James translators came, apparently, uh, and there's, there's, accurate, there's, hist- there's re- reason to believe that all the time, there was, I think, four times left, the Bishop's Bible, I think it was, and even the Geneva Bible, had that word translated Easter four times. And the, all the translators originally said, okay, this is the word for Passover, let's just, it, Passover. And apparently Richard Bancroft, the lead translator, said at the last minute, you know what, let's retain that at least in one spot the ecclesiastical term. There was actually instructions of the king to retain the ecclesiastical words. And so he left the one in Acts 12.4, and, and that's the only reason why the word Easter is in there. It is not a reference to a pagan holiday, but there's this movement going on in modern day Christianity that is condemning Easter because of its pagan origins. By the way, it's interesting to me, There's so many people will condemn people for saying Happy Easter, but they won't condemn someone for saying Merry Christmas. Hey, they both. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. And that was definitely a a pagan, you know, the the reason it was December 25th. But, I, you know, in fact, we live in a day where people are becoming so secularized, there's an attack, and I hear many Christians saying, we need to keep Christ in Christmas, and now they're more bold than ever to say, Merry Christmas. Can I ask you, I want to challenge you, do not condemn someone that says Happy Easter. They're not glorifying a pagan holiday. Please understand that. I, I shared in this video that um, I, 
I even had a pamphlet that defended that translation of Easter, and I handed it out to our church years ago. And I share this in the story. And actually, the person that uh, didn't buy it hook, line, and sinker was Mr. Bertolette. And he said, I don't know about this, and he challenged me on it. And I remember at the time, I was very, I was like, what are you talking about, you know? You don't love the King James Version? And, and, uh, but thankfully, you know, I praise God that for people that disagree with me, and he had a good argument the more I studied it. And then I understood and I learned the reason where that, the word Easter came from and what it meant. Anyway, I say this. You know, it goes back to this quote. When you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they are meant to free. If you and I are jumping down people's throats for saying, Happy Easter. Have we lost sight of the fact that we're serving a living Savior? As we close, our focus in serving a risen Savior compared to a cold, dead orthodoxy is where our focus is. I remind you, I've shared this maybe twice before in the past, but it's such an important study and the, it was related in a magazine article, World Magazine, many years ago. I believe it was a small article called Me, Myself, and I. Susan Olasky, uh, she wrote this. So she was relating about a study that was done at the University of Texas. A professor named James Pennebacher. And he writes in the Harvard Business Review that there was a computer program that came up with some years ago that would analyze people's words in a text into function words. Pronouns, articles, conjunctions. This was before the whole fiasco about pronouns. <laughs> and um, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs, they, all, they, they convey meaning. And so this program analyzes someone's text to, to, to assess their mental state, I guess, and so they analyzed 400,000 texts from college students, from their essays, their text messages, their transcripts, chat room conversations. I mean, this is a pretty massive study. And then they, they, so they studied and put these things in the algorithm, and then they followed the people's lives. And they followed, you know, just not in an invasive way necessarily, but just, okay, who are the kids that ended up being happy and well-adjusted? And who are the kids that really struggled with depression and, and some of them would even take their life? And, they, and he writes this, again, Professor Pennebacher. He said, some of our findings were surprising. When we analyzed the words written by people who committed suicide versus writings by those who didn't, we thought, so they went into it thinking, I'll bet that people that, that end up being depressed and take their life, that they probably have a lot more darker thoughts, darker pronouns, you know, things that it's much more darker and negative in the contents of their words. But they didn't find that. But you know what they did find? They discovered that there was a significant difference in frequency of words like I. Pronouns tell us where people focus their attention. And if someone used the pronoun I over too much, 
It showed a self-focus. And he said this, and I quote, Depressed people use the word I much more than emotionally stable people. Now there's something there for us to learn. Because you know where the devil leads us, right? When he wants us to focus on ourselves versus the God, the living Savior, and the people we're called to serve, if he can get you, and do not forget, Satan can put suggestions in our minds. Remember, who have put it in your heart to betray? I mean, over and over again, there's evidence in Scripture that Satan can put suggestions in our minds. That's why we have to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So, what should our focus be? Not just on Resurrection Sunday, but all the time. Should it be on what I'm going through? By the way, that's what the world focuses on. And, and we even have to be careful in a lot of the counseling settings is that a lot of times, folks, they're just beating the drum on, let's talk about your problems. Sometimes that may help, but I'm telling you, I, I am guaranteed, folks, our focus needs to be on a certain relationship you and I have. It's a relationship that takes cultivating. It's a relationship that is a very real relationship. It's a relationship that has to be by faith for now. But someday, we are going to see Him. We're going to realize. That we're gonna be, it's going to be affirmed. He's alive. Have you forgotten that He's alive? Don't forget it. Let's walk with the living Savior today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, remind us that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. No matter what men may say, we know that You are living. And so, Father, help us to have that vibrant relationship with You. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Please